We thank you for sending your word into the world, your Son, Jesus Christ, that we might know you and we might know the, the extreme patience and grace that you extend to us, the, the great love that you have for us, that your Son would be willing even to take on flesh, die wrongfully, a criminal's death. We thank you. We pray that seeing him, knowing him, we would be filled with hope. And we pray that you would, by your Spirit, be working in our lives to give us an awareness of Christ's presence here with us, to open our eyes to see him and our hearts to receive him, our ears to hear him calling our names, and that you would make us willing and able to reply, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Father, we pray for this time, as your word is preached. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Since the middle of September, we have been working through the new mission, vision, and values of First Presbyterian Church. They're on the website under the About Us tab, in case you are interested in viewing those. And beginning last week, and for the next two weeks, we're, we're taking one of our values each week and examining it in the light of Scripture. And the value that we're looking at this morning is the cultivation of cross-generational relationships. That's one of the things we value here, the cultivation of cross-generational relationships. But before we begin, I do want to thank you for your endurance through these multiple mini-series dedicated to our mission, vision, and values. I'll not be here next Sunday, so this is my opportunity to express my gratitude for the, the patience, the receptivity, the interest you have shown as we've rolled out these three statements describing who we are, why we exist, and where we're going. And I recognize, and perhaps I'm the only one feeling this way, but I recognize the weariness of these sermons. Right? There's excitement in envisioning the future, no doubt. There's also a comfort in, in knowing what this church is about and how we view ourselves. But there's also a weariness that arises whenever you look too long in the mirror or dream about what great things we hope to do in the future that are currently just beyond us and will require stretching and growth in order to make them reality. We'll have spent after next Sunday, two months talking about ourselves and what we hope to do. And that has necessarily meant that we have not emphasized Jesus and what he has done. We've been focused on our response and not on the initiate, initiating act to which we are responding, which is not wrong to do. But it's only partial and it's unsustainable. We're driving a car that's close to empty. <laughs> And if you're like me, you could really benefit from a fill-up, which is why I am so grateful that Advent is coming. 
right? That contemplative season where we are satisfied with the longing for God and with Him coming to us. All this focus on, on action, right? On who we are, what we're going to do is necessary and it's good and there's nothing wrong with it. But we have to move forward while still abiding in Christ. Right? Apart from me, you can do nothing, Jesus tells us. And sending his disciples into action, he tells them, go and do, but remember, I'm with you always. It's a call to confidence and to humility. You can courageously meet any challenge because I'm with you. But don't forget in the pride of victory that I was with you. There must be a balance to our corporate and individual lives of faith. We must go and be present, spending ourselves for the sake of Jesus Christ, while at the same time, lest we burn ourselves out or become arrogant because of our accomplishments, commune with God by cultivating an awareness of His presence with us. We go in God, and He is our strength for the work ahead of us. He is our food and our fuel. We're insufficient on our own. It requires satisfaction in Him to do the work He's calling us to, which is why I'm so grateful that Advent is coming, and why I'm so grateful that we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper every Sunday in Advent. After this long gaze into the mirror, we're going to return to Christ and let him feed us and fill us up that we might do his work. That's what's coming. But for this Sunday and the next, we're going to keep looking into the mirror just a little while longer. This morning, as I said earlier, we'll be examining our stated value of the cultivation of cross-generational relationships. And for this purpose, I've chosen two passages of Scripture, one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament, to illustrate why cross-generational relationships are so important to the church universal and to First Presbyterian Church in particular. And the two passages I have chosen were read for you earlier. They're the stories kind of of the, of the birth and the childhood of Jesus and of Samuel. And the reason I chose these stories is because the church, which has existed since the creation of humanity, only explicitly so in the, the formal sense since Pentecost, but the church, prior to these two stories, was in a place not too different from where we see the church in the United States today in decline and disarray. Right? There are three things to point to that illustrate the state of the church before Samuel's birth. The first is that the period of the judges, which immediately preceded Samuel's birth, ended with this summative statement. In those days there was no king in Israel, and all the people did what was right in their own eyes. Right? In other words, there was this moral disintegration among the people, and there was no government to, to guide or, or direct them, correct them. The religious authorities were of no help either, for the moral decay had seeped into the church itself. And this is the second point that illustrates the state of the church at that time. Eli, who was the high priest, the holiest man in, in town, had two worthless sons, the text says. In fact, Hophni and Phinehas, his sons, are called scoundrels. In a time where there was an absence of political influence and great moral disintegration in the culture, the church offered no help 
No countering vision of how life should be lived. And so it was a dark time. It was a dark and it was a silent time, which is the third fact that illustrates the position of the church at that time. In the first verse of 1 Samuel 3, we're told that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were not widespread. God himself had become silent. Tired of yelling into the wind, God became quiet and let the church have what they wanted, which is the worst thing that can happen to a Christian, for us to get what we want. (laughs) There was civil decay, moral decay, religious decay, and God was silent. And in the time between the two testaments, leading up to Jesus' birth, it was a similar situation. There was religious decay. It was the sort of thing that Jesus would address when he began his ministry and flipped over the tables of the, the money exchangers in the temple, robbing God in his very house. And there was a king by now, but it was not Israel's king. It was Herod, who only cared for the church as long as it was politically expedient for him. Israel was his pawn in a game he was playing with Rome. It was a dark time and a quiet time. No prophet had spoken since Malachi. And I don't know that you can draw a a one-to-one comparison between the present day to either of those two periods, but there are several resonances between them. The church is in steep decline today. According to a Gallup poll in 2020, only 47% of Americans, only 47% of Americans said they belong to a church, synagogue, or mosque. The first time in 80 years since they've been measuring this thing that this number dropped below 50%. In fact, in just 1999, that number was at 70%. The decline has been precipitous, and the pandemic has only hastened the decline. As the the dust settles post-pandemic, it appears that most churches are reporting that attenders who who lived kind of at the periphery of the church are are not returning to worship. The cores remain, but the periphery has disappeared and is unlikely to return. In fact, the Wall Street Journal recently had a piece up that referenced a Barna study claiming that church attendance is down 30 to 40 percent post-pandemic. The church in America, whether Protestant or Catholic, is hemorrhaging members. And part of that is due to decline in trust for any institutional authority in general. Institutional authority of any kind, it has all but disappeared. And so every person decides and does what is right in their own eyes. They piece together a moral system. We've lost a common sense of morality to guide and govern us. And Washington, D.C. is an absolute mess, (laughs) regardless of which political party is in power. Our country is divided, fractured, in significant and serious ways. And the moral disintegration has seeped into the church itself. One only needs to think of Robbie Zacharias or the scandals of of the Catholic Church, the abuse scandals of the Catholic Church, or Bill Hybels or Liberty University or Carl Lentz, Right? And this isn't to name the many pastors who resign every year due to moral failings, adultery or plagiarism, or pornography, the list goes on and on and on. Right? It's a dark and confusing time we live in. So what does this have to do with the cultivation of cross-generational relationships? 
Well, what's interesting is that in these dark times, cross-generational relationships become immensely important. Older generations are given hope as they become meaningfully involved in the lives of young people and they witness God doing a new work in their hearts and in their minds. And younger generations are given hope as older generations testify to a world in which darkness and confusion did not and therefore will not always reign. They also introduce these young people to the king, to Jesus, who will guide and govern them in this world so that they do not just survive but actually flourish. Older generations and younger generations in relationship provide each other with hope. And we see this in our stories this morning. The births of Samuel and Jesus are each surrounded by songs. And these are songs of hope sung by an older generation who was in desperate need of it. Samuel was an answer to long and earnest prayers, often ones accompanied by tears, so that his birth alone is cause for hope, evidence that God still hears the prayers of his church and is active in the world. And in Hannah's song, as well as the song sung around the birth of Jesus, these people are singing not just about themselves, but about the hope they have for the world, a renewed hope that things will be set right, that God has not actually forgotten his people and will bring justice and healing as he's promised. These children, these young people, are the evidence they needed. So Hannah sings. Mary sings. Zechariah sings. Simon sings. Anna can't shut her mouth telling everyone about the coming salvation of Jesus Christ. These are songs of hope, of relief, of joy, of deep contentment. They can all die in peace as Simon sang. Why? Because look what God's doing in these children. These children are evidence that God is still at work Despite the steep declines in membership and faithful ones, God has not given up on his church. Those of you who are of an older generation, using that term loosely, whether you're in your 30s or in your 70s, yes, if you are in your 30s, you are an older generation. (laughs) Do you feel hopeful about the future of the church in America? I mean, you might, you might, truly, you might, if you got to know and invested in the future of the church who you have access to. The children and the youth who sit in these very pews, who fill our classrooms, who cry in our nursery, who in a few weeks will dress up and act out the Christmas story for you. They might give you hope. Every year it's a struggle to find volunteers who are willing to teach Sunday school to staff our nursery, our young children's worship, to hang out with our youth, to participate in vacation Bible school. And it's a sad reality to me, not just because we're depriving our children of hope and help in this confusing world. We'll get to that in a second. But also because we're depriving ourselves of the hope that comes from watching children grow up in our midst 
who love God and know God and are attempting to live for Him in this world. They are God's evidence that He has not given up on His church, and we're not paying attention to them. No wonder we have such little hope for the church. We might have more if we witnessed how the sobering statistics of young people leaving the church don't actually tell our story. Because God is working in the lives of our children and young people in ways that give us hope. And that also might become true of them because you are involved in their lives. They can be a source of hope for you and you can be a source of hope and help for them. Right? We see this in the, the dream sequence in, in Samuel's story. The text tells us that despite working in the temple under the supervision of the high priest, Samuel did not know the Lord. The word had not been made known to him. And so when God called out to Samuel, Samuel certainly didn't know his voice. He thought it was Eli. And so he went to Eli said, here I am. Eli said, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. And he did that three times until Eli realized the boy's hearing God's voice. God's speaking to his people again. And so Eli introduced Samuel to a spiritual reality he had no idea existed. God talks to his people. And we can talk back. This had been a paradigm shift for this boy, Samuel. But he never would have spoken his famous response, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening, had not Eli had the historical memory of a time when God used to speak to his people and guided Samuel there. He was a help to Samuel. And hope flooded into his world as he encountered the living God and spoke to him. Now, there are several ways you can bring hope to the children and the teens of First Presbyterian Church. I'm only going to mention two. The first is to get serious about your faith. The second is to actively seek to shape kids and teens as Christians. So the first is to get serious about your own faith. We see in Eli that God can certainly work in spite of you. Eli's sons were worthless for a reason. Eli was absent. It's amazing Hannah brought her son to Eli. Eli was absent. There's no accountability, no calling, no checks. Hophni and Phinehas were worthless. So God can certainly work in spite of you. But why force him to? Why force him to work in spite of you? Christian Smith wrote this incredibly valuable book entitled Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. It's incredibly good. I would recommend it to anyone. And in that book, he makes this observation. Teenagers are often spoken of in popular culture as alien creatures, strange beings from another planet, Unpredictable animals driven by mysterious forces and motives to whom parents and other adults have little chance of relating or understanding. In fact, however, American youth actually share much more in common with adults than they do not share. 
And most American youth actually, uh, and most American youth faithfully mirror the aspirations, lifestyles, practices, and problems of the adult world into which they are being socialized. And these ways, adolescence may actually serve as a very accurate barometer of the condition of the culture and institutions of our larger society. Far from being alien creatures from another planet, American teenagers actually well reflect back to us the best and worst of our own adult condition and culture. What Smith is saying is that teenagers in particular, but the same is true for, for all children, they are a mirror of sorts. And we cannot reasonably be hopeless about their future without examining our own commitments and priorities or faith in the present. This is especially true of parents, but Smith points out that parents cannot do this alone. They need a supportive culture with similar-minded adults active in the lives of their children. And this entire culture, First Presbyterian Church, we're talking about here, must model what we hope to see. We have the opportunity to be helpful to parents and kids, but it requires that we ourselves are serious about our faith and about things like attending church, prayer, reading scripture, taking the sacraments. The first thing that you can do to help parents and children, youth, is to get serious about your own faith. The second is that we can actively seek to shape kids and teens as Christians. In another one of his books entitled Religious Parenting, Christian Smith describes a a cultural phenomenon that puts religious parents and communities in a bit of a pickle. That phenomenon is the modern belief that children should be able to make their own decisions about religion. They should come to it on their own. Right? What parents need to do is model it, and the children will catch it. Parents are, are terrified to press too hard or to, to, to make requirements about religion, to, to teach children explicitly about their faith. And yet at the same time, they secretly hope that their children will stay within their religious tradition. Right? This is true of parents in every religion, and Christianity is no exception. But if we seek to form kids and teens as Christians, then we must do so actively and not just with our fingers crossed behind our backs, hoping that they see us praying and will come to their own correct conclusions, follow in our footsteps. The formation of kids and teens as Christians requires the active investment of a Christian community intentionally and purposefully passing on the faith to them. It requires the investment of adults in every aspect of life, social and spiritual, so that they learn what it means to live as a Christian in the world. They know what Christians believe. They can articulate it for themselves. And perhaps in the process, they may even hear the voice of God calling them by name and respond, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. As a church, we we value cross-generational relationships. Because they're the means by which hope grows in our community. And, and, and the means by which our community survives this dark and quiet season of life. But this value will only be reality 
if we provide you with opportunities for these kinds of relationships, and if you buy in, if you invest in each other, if you invest in the children and the teens, if you give up your time, your energy, it'll cease to be a value of ours if it fails to describe us. So let's pursue hope together and let's pursue each other. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.